What is it like to design a brand new theme park using one of the deepest entertainment libraries in the world? That's what Dave Cobb and his team at Thinkwell Group got to do. I'm Robert Niles from Theme Park Insider, and I sat down with Dave to talk about the design and development of Warner Brothers World Abu Dhabi, the world's largest indoor theme park. Let's hear how Dave and his team brought places such as Metropolis, Gotham City, and Bedrock to life. Howdy. So, uh, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, you just helped design, okay, not just like a roller coaster or a dark ride or something. <laughs> you designed an entire theme park. How cool is that? Yeah, I keep, it's funny. People keep asking me, how does it feel? And I'm like, it's, I'm st- it's still a little shell shock. I think a lot of the team feels that way. It's mm-hmm. because we built this giant thing. I mean, it's, there's so many moving parts. It's, and I, that's how I describe it to people. Yeah, it's great. We built a big thing. It's a giant thing <laughs> that, li- that exists in the universe now that didn't before, which is great. I mean, it's uh, obviously the team is, unbelievably proud of it i'm very proud of the team and i'm very proud of what we pulled off there but it is a little i look back on it and there's still a hint of unreality to it all Mm -hmm. because there's just so many different things and it was such a a long process you know well let's start the story at the beginning then let's uh when did this project get started who got it going and when did you get on board so Thinkwell was contacted by Warner Brothers after a couple of uh, initial projects we had done for them at some of their other parks, the Movie World Parks, and um, uh, contacted by Warner Brothers in 2007. And we were called into a meeting and, and with uh, Joe Zenas and Craig Hanna, our uh, CEO and CCO, and, and uh, they were told there's going to be this giant theme park in Abu Dhabi and it's going to be this big and it's going to cost this much money and you guys are going to design it. Go. It was okay. It was literally that. <laughs> and I was brought on board shortly after that initial sort of uh, uh, meet and greet and Warner Brothers bringing us on board. I was brought in as the Parkwright creative director um, as they were getting out of sort of uh, early blue sky meetings. So mm-hmm. I was part of the first concept team to, to come in and, and start making it real in late, late 2007. Okay. Now Warner brothers is a huge palette to paint from here. Yeah. So I mean, even before you start making decisions on what's going to go into the park, how do you even create a process to make that decision? I mean, who's involved <laughs> in deciding what IPs are going in, what experiences are we trying to have? I right. Mean, how does that process start? Well, uh, a couple of things. Um, we knew going in that, uh, and this was a, uh, a mandate from Warner Brothers and part of the agreement with that they had made with Morale was that it would not be the live action oh, okay. uh, library, that it would be DC Comics or DC Entertainment mm-hmm. and um, what's called Warner Brothers Classic Animation, which is actually three different um, animation legacies. Looney Tunes, of course, Hanna-Barbera, and uh, Tom and Jerry. And so we knew that those were the libraries we could pick from. And one of the great things is um, the head of Morale is a huge comic book nerd, as it turns out. He has a giant collection of comic books and has collected them his whole life. So he knew what he was talking about. And so, uh, which helps, which helps a lot. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So we knew the broader library. um, And it's not that the live action films were going to be ignored in the park. It's that the world building wouldn't be related to that. So there's a a land in the middle of the park, Warner Brothers Plaza, which is our sort of um, uh, spirit of 1920s Hollywood, but a a little contemporary town square, Hollywood town square, if you will, that's Mm -hmm. like our our Main Street entry. And it has um, a a celebration of the live action films in the form of uh, Cinematic Spectacular, which is a big registered projection show. So we knew we were going to acknowledge the uh, live action 
legacy of films, but the world building and attractions in the park would be um, completely sort of bespoke based on the animated identities. And, and in, in the case of um, DC Comics, sort of a heightened reality CG, not unlike what they do for like the Arkham games and with the uh, uh, DC or the Looney Tunes side of things, a very heightened 3D version uh, of the two, original 2D Looney Tunes and Hanna-Barbera animation. Let's back up for just a second and give people who haven't been to the park, which I'm guessing is 99.9% of the people listening to this at this stage, let's give them a real quick overview of what you've got in Warner Brothers World Abu Dhabi. Sure, sure. So um, uh, the park is split into um, sort of three overarching brands, Mm -hmm. but one, two, three, four, six, (laughs) keep losing track. Six, why why am I losing track? I should know this by heart. Um, Six lands. So... Um, after an initial entry sequence through a sort of stylized, very contemporary lobby that introduces you to the to the characters and super graphics and, and gets you your ticket and gets you inside, you are in Warner Brothers Plaza, which mm-hmm. is an ode, as I said, to 1920s Hollywood uh, with a contemporary bent, like all the, the billboards are for m- movies that are out now. And, right. and all the, the, that's the center of the park that is um, a, a figure eight. If you imagine a figure eight master plan, this, the center of that figure eight where the two pieces cross um, is our one of this plaza. And that is the lion's share in terms of capacity of the retail and restaurants and food, uh, food and beverage offerings in the park are in that. So it encourages people to sort of circulate through that center space. And then there are two major zones on the side of that that are each split into um, lands of their own. The two zones are DC Comics and Warner Brothers Classic Animation. Mm -hmm. DC Comics is two lands. Um, It is uh, Metropolis and Gotham City. Gotham City also within it has two different identities, a small little uh, seedy part of town and then the Gotham City Wharf, uh, which is sort of a waterfront area. But that's one land. No, there are, so DC Comics is two lands, Metropolis and Gotham City. And then you go through um, uh, Cartoon Junction, which is the home to the Looney Tunes. It's where they live, work, and play. And uh, you transition from there down a sort of tunified version of Route 66. As you leave town, you go through the desert. That's called Dynamite Gulch. And that's home to Yosemite Sam and um, Wiley Cody and the Roadrunner. And actually, uh, two of our outer space characters, uh, the Jetsons and Marvin the Martian, crashed in an area of the desert called uh, Area 51 and a Half. I love that. Uh, I love that so much. <laughs> and uh, that was a detail that was uh, by necessity. And we'll tell that story later. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and then leaving that, you go into the town of Bedrock mm-hmm. from the Flintstones. And that rounds out your six completely immersive themed environments of Warner Brothers World Abu Dhabi. So this is part of the Yaz Island development in uh, in Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about that context. I mean, right. how did this park evolve because it's in the Middle East? It's in Abu Dhabi as opposed to putting it someplace like Orlando or Tokyo or someplace else. Sure. So... I mean, the region had a huge burst of, of development in the late 90s and early aughts. Um, this rode the wave of that. Most of that happened in Dubai to start with. And Abu Dhabi, which is about an hour away, to give everybody a sense, um, uh, it, it, it became the, the next new place, right? Mm-hmm. And th- ironically, even after all of the big development in Dubai, the first real big, big theme park was Ferrari World, which was in right. Abu Dhabi. And so it's a massive structure and a really audacious piece of engineering and and uh, um, landed uh, right smack dab in the middle of uh, all of the press that the region was getting. So Abu Dhabi has a very audacious plan in terms of expansion for the region. Um, they, they, they see uh, uh, millions of people coming here within the next five to ten years. And it's hard for Westerners and North American folks to 
um, to see why, right? I've had people go, I look so hot. I mean, you know, why would I want to go? Um, the real reason is it's not for us. It's mm-hmm. really built as warm weather resort and theme park travel for Eastern Europe, China, Russia, uh, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So the, this, I mean, Dubai and Abu Dhabi are travel hubs and banking hubs now, right? That's, that's what the, the main industry has become there. And so they are marketing to those local international audiences the same way North America at Universal and Disney market to Canada, North America, Europe, Japan, mm-hmm. South America. So it, it's, it's, it's the same kind of product, but it's not casting a, a necessarily a global reach. They are focusing mainly on, like I said, Eastern Russia or Eastern Europe, China, Russia, Southeast Asia, Middle East, eat what we call the EMEA region, and that's their equivalent to the Bahamas or Hawaii or Orlando, and uh, and so that's what the product is focused on being. And so it is started out as lots of really great hotels, beaches, um, resort amenities, mall shopping, high-end shopping, resort shopping, and now theme parks. And so um, there were two parks before Warner Brothers got there uh, on Yas Island. There was mm-hmm. the Ferrari World Park and there was Yas Water World, one of the largest water parks in the world. And we are literally next door, literally walking distance if you want to walk outside in the heat. But you don't want to do that. But you don't no. want to do that. Uh, um, <laughs> not in the summer, at least. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. We joke about it, but it's lovely in the winter. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Like like January, February. It's great there. Um, but, yes, it's very, very July, warm. not so much. Not so much. You were you were there. As I, you saw. I was there in July. Um, I had the absolutely amazing opportunity to take a few laps on the F1 track. Oh, cool. This is right next to Ferrari World. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, there's a reason why you don't do Formula One races in July in Abu Dhabi when it's 115 <laughs> degrees inside. And this was a closed cockpit car. I yeah. darn near died. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But it was a great time. Had a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, let's kind of talk about how Warner Brothers World kind of fits with Ferrari World. I mean, you've got these two big theme parks next to each other, but it's not like, uh, you know, it's Walt Disney World or Universal Orlando, and it's you know there's this one overarching brand that unifies the two parks. I mean, right. one's Warner Brothers, one's Ferrari. Right. I mean, how do those two fit together? Well, with all uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of up and coming competition in the region, uh, not just the theme parks next next door, but down the road. And so we obviously do take that into account, and we look and see what the benchmarking is and the comparables in the region are. And when you look at Ferrari World and Yas Water World. Yas Water World's easy. It's a water park. We don't have to mm-hmm. be any of that. Ferrari World um, is a lot of superlatives when it comes to its rides. It has three of the biggest coasters, to at least one of the biggest coasters in the world. Um, I think Flying Aces ranks in one of the largest looping coasters in the world. Um, and so we knew that a record-setting, highest, fastest, loopiest, whatever was not necessary. Yeah, the big coaster there, Formula Rosa, fastest roller coaster in the world, 140 mile an hour launch coaster themed to a Ferrari F1 car. It, it's Absolutely amazing. Insane. But insane. It's, insane. It's great, but it's insane. Yes. And because of that, um, that sort of hardcore thrill, you know, coaster count kind of crowd, um, we didn't have to necessarily aim at that. And that also worked because people may not know this. Ferrari World and Yas Water World are owned and operated by Morale, by the same mm-hmm. people who own and operate Warner Brothers. So um, they see this as a multi-park resort. 
So it was up to us to look at what was across the street and complement it. Um, does that mean we're never going to do a big coaster in sort of future expansions for Warner Brothers Park? Probably, no, we probably will do something. But we didn't have to do it year one. What we could focus on was um, the stuff that is a little bit lighter at Ferrari World. Ferrari World has stuff for families, but we knew we could lean directly into a family audience, directly into a uh, more like um, a Disney or a Universal Park in that Disney Universal Parks don't try to be the largest coasters in the world. They try to be a great family coaster experience that everybody can enjoy, like Space Mountain, like Expedition Everest, like The Mummy. So we could look at our thrills in a more familial sense. We can look in our environments and our dark rides as the kind of things that are more immersive than just ride experiences. And it gave us a, a much more specific palette and a specific kind of park to shoot for. Okay. Um kind of uh, alluded to expansion there. And this is something I was thinking about as I was going through the park. How do you expand an all indoor theme park? It's not like you've got a big expansion pad in the middle of it. Sure. I mean, is it possible or is this already kind of on its final form? No, it's definitely possible. And it was planned from day one. Oh. Um, there are giant plots of land uh, uh, kind of near the outside of walls in two or three strategic places. If you look at it on Google Maps and you're a smart person, you'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> And and, uh, and those furiously were, opening new browser yeah, windows right now as, <laughs> as I'm speaking. And it's and they, if you look at the plan of the park, it relates to particular locations within the park that are malleable. So um, that are, let's say, they they scenic areas or simple food and beverage that can be taken out and moved. And so you mm. blow out that blow out that wall, you build a new building expansion and you have a whole new land or attraction. And so yeah, we, that has been planned. Um uh nothing started yet, but hopefully starting soon. They are definitely interested in putting in more stuff. And so more people come and there's yeah. more demand then yep. you know expansion tends to happen. Yep. Um there's certainly a lot of material to draw from here. <laughs> I what, I, I don't think anyone who knows you would 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 uh, dispute the characterization that that uh, you're a total nerd about this stuff. <laughs> and yes. full disclosure, takes one to know one. <laughs> um, there is so much detail because it's not like you'd never seen Scooby Doo before and had to go like cram on everything. I mean, <laughs> I, I if, if, you've, if you've been growing up with all of this stuff, yeah. you understand all of these um, uh, franchises. There's so much detail in here. There's so much fan service. Tell me a little bit about the process of picking, you know, what details you're going to put into this park and just give us an overview of some of your favorite pieces of fan service Easter eggs that made it into the park. Sure. Um, well, I mean, as we started to look at attraction development for this, obviously, uh, a lot of the team is, um, I'm 48. A lot of the team was sort of thirties and forties. We had a, mm -hmm. some, some youngins, uh, in their twenties, everybody knew these brands, but a large portion of the, of the team really knew these brands and grew up with them. I mean, these were in my DNA, you know, I, always tell people I know everything I know about classical music because of Looney Tunes and, and, and Wabbit, right, exactly. And I know everything I know about camp and drag for that matter from Bugs Bunny, <laughs> you know, uh, um, and, and there's certain tropes and things that you learn. Like, uh, I think my comedic sensibilities were really formed a lot by Looney Tunes, and which were an adaptation of early vaudeville. You know, that's why I'm really good at dad jokes. So, um, but <laughs> uh, I, I think w the trick with this was fan service is great, and we all want to 
put our own sort of stamp of why we love these things. But it's also about seducing the new audience up that pyramid, right? It's about what part of this that I love are they going to grasp onto if they don't know the brand and make them fall in love with it. And so it it is... It's the impassioned conversation you have with your friends about the thing you love and trying to not just tell them you're right in loving it, but I want you to love it too. That's, that's the tactic is it is about we, are, have a, uh, we have an obligation to introduce these brands in a lot of sense to a lot of ways to this local audience that may not know them at all. And so how do we do that and yet still not just make it a, a book report and make it um, exciting for us as fans? And, and if you can check both of those boxes, it's an incredibly challenging hat trick. But if you can do it, 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 it ends up working. I love the, uh, the kind of the analogy of working people up that pyramid. Yeah. And I think one of the great examples of that is the Animayhem ride. <laughs> um, this is set in the Acme factory. And uh, anyone who's familiar with uh, Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote is always ordering things from the Acme factory, mm-hmm. these products that he's going to use to help capture the Roadrunner, and they all fail spectacularly. Right, right. So in Anime Ham, we enter the factory. Right. And it is this wonderful... Actually, R&D. R&D, R&D. Yeah. R&D. Factories okay. across the way. Okay. There's a whole, and there's a whole reason for that, too. Right. Like, if you look at... Okay, take Cartoon Junction as a place, right? We knew this was going to be a city, a small town, mm-hmm. where all these tunes come from. Um, well, it's not going to be about animation. It's not going to be about how cartoons are made, right? It's going to be a real place. All right, how do you make an early century American town, Americana town? Well, you start with... You actually first start with who's the first settler, right? That's the biggest house in town. It usually ends up being the rail baron or the oil baron, mm-hmm. right? That's the big spooky mansion across the way that ended up becoming our Museum of Mysteries, a.k.a. our Scooby-Doo attraction. So it's not a story we ever tell to the guests, but that's why that spooky mansion is there is it's the oldest house in town, right? Mm -hmm. After that, a small town sprung up around that in support of this guy's burgeoning industry. And that's our small town of shops and restaurants and, and cafes and a little vaudeville theater. And that little vaudeville theater is where Bugs and Daffy got their start. So slowly the, 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 the town starts to form when we start giving it a reason for being. When Along the way, we said, well, what was the big boom in this town? We said, well, that's when it's beca- when it became a company town. Well, what company would that be that can, that can hire thousands of people? Acme. Acme. Right. So Acme starts out as a giant factory because they can't keep up with production. And that's why all their stuff is a little janky. And, <laughs> and so that's the factory. So the factory is the big sort of early century, 30s, 40s, like brick, you know, industrial plant. Right. That's one side of the Acme campus, if you will. Um, I like to think of it kind of like Willy Wonka, like it's a couple of buildings with a gate in front of it. And the our gate has a little sign that says Acme and their their slogan is caveat emptor, um, which if you don't speak Latin is buyer beware. Uh, we thought it was a fitting slogan. Um, so the factory is where we have our, our kids active play in a couple of little spinny rides in a cafe. So it's like the big energetic, dun, 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 da, 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 da. you know, it's, it's, it's all the energy we thought, all right, well, once they got to success and they started to make more products, cause they just started with, you know, anvils and, and, and magnets and things. And they started, when they started to expand, what did that business look like? And so we built a building across the street from that. That's more mid-century, like forties, fifties. And when we started talking about mid-century, what does that conjure in your head? Well, for businesses, it conjures like madmen. Yeah. Right? So that's the theme of the queue for our Anna Mayhem ride when you're going through um, Acme 
uh, product development, basically. It's like Mad Men meets Looney Tunes, which is just as a fan, the minute somebody said that in a meeting and it came out, we all went, <gasps> yes, that's perfect. And just the jokes just came out. But again, we never would have gotten there without figuring out what is the 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 reason for the being of this town and if this is a real place how did it develop none of these story points are ever told to the guests in any sort of didactic dialogue or signage or anything it is literally the story that we create as designers to help flesh out the realism uh, and authenticity of a place because if you're going to have convincing world building it's going to be a convincing space yeah it has to flow from some basic kind of natural physical rules about how spaces develop. Yeah, yeah. And and I think you all did an amazing job with Thanks. Cartoon Justin on Junction on that. I mean, the gags that are in and the anime him, <laughs> I mean, my favorite is the, the is the trophy case. Yes. If you want to describe the trophy case sure. for uh, Acme. So we said, so when you're queuing up, it's, it's now you, you know, in a lot of these rides, we want to cast you in a role as a guest. So you're a new hire and that's how you're addressed pretty much through all of the pre-show materials. You're a new hire. First day in the job, everybody starts in the mail room. You're going to get in a delivery truck with a pair of safety goggles and a package scanner, and you're going to deliver cartoon mayhem throughout the known Looney Tunes universe. Um, that's the basic rules of the ride. But we sort of dig a little deeper in the extended queue. If, if you go there and have a long wait, you're going to sort of dig deep into the history of Acme. We thought, well, there's going to be a corporate lobby. There's going to be sort of um, hallways with doors that lead to different departments. Um, so in the lobby, there is a trophy case that is mostly empty that is covered in cobwebs um that has one or two lone awards and my favorite one is um the uh uh is it oh no it's achievement in oh, legalese yeah achievement in legalese and and the and it's a crystal sort of shard with a little etched asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> um yeah i the, the other one is the i can't believe it's not fraud award <laughs> uh and then there's a, an award on the wall for um uh, wiley coyote he's like the you know lifetime product testing uh, so there's also, there's a timeline of all the products and it literally, it starts out with, it all began with an anvil, right? Like that's when they started. There's doors with sort of shadow gags in them where you see products being tested in, in, in labs and all going awry. There's a directory board with all sorts of crazy departments on it. So there's these things that make it feel like a real company, like a real place. And, uh, all of that. The best part about that is that it's fan service, but it doesn't come directly from the cartoons. None of this really comes from the cartoons. Like we had to create it. And that was one of the things that we established with our relationship with the Warner Brothers was we got their trust and we sort of pitched these ideas going, we, you know, all you guys have in Acme in like your style guides is the product labels. That's it. There's no right. place. Acme never had a place ever. You mm -hmm. never saw it. It was a nameless, faceless, faceless company that made really crappy products. And so what does that look like? And so the more we developed it and gave it this realism, the more Warner Brothers sort of nodded along with us and said, yes, that's that's great. And we're proud of it. And it's, you know, technically it's officially canon now. That's, nice. that's very nice. part of Acme lore now, which is, you know, as a fan makes us all kind of swoon with gratitude <laughs> that we get the chance to play in that sandbox. Absolutely. Uh, you know, another thing that helps in building a convincing world is not just the way it looks, not just the way it feels, but the way it sounds. Mm. Um, tell me a little bit about how you approached music in this park and yeah. some of the interesting things that you did with that. Uh, there are 
hours and hours of original music. And original let music. me stress that the everything you hear in this park, with very few exceptions, there's a little bit of um, what we call needle drop or library music in mm-hmm. things like some of the retail stores and and uh, uh, and f- food and beverage. But everything in the attractions is 100% bespoke for this park. And now that sounds weird. You're like, wait a minute, hang on. Warner Brothers has got this huge legacy of Scooby-Doo and, and, and all these Looney iconic Sons. themes. Right. Well, music licensing is a tricky thing in that those original recordings um, are li- when you license those for use, um, you can't really do anything with them other than play them back. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, people will hear this is complicated. I'll try to summarize. But in, in the U.S. park world, yes, you can walk into Universal Studios and hear John Williams' original score for Harry Potter or E.T. playing in the background. Well, a lot of that has to do with what's called an ASCAP license, the the, um, the publishing of music. Um, when you have an ASCAP license, it's like a radio station. You pay a yearly fee as a site, and that yearly fee in its micropayments gets sent out to everybody that's ever written a recorded song, right? And that that's how restaurants and radio stations and everything pay for these things. Well, ASCAP doesn't exist outside the US. So to use music in a theme park, it's what you call a reuse license. And the minute you do reuse, it's actually more expensive for me to license the original tracks from say a Looney Tunes or a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. And it's more expensive for me to license it and re-edit than it is to completely re-record it. Mm-hmm. And then you get to, well, the original quality, the original recordings, the, the, the length and timing and pacing of the music is not, was meant for that cartoon. It's right, not meant for right. my ride. So, well, why bother? There's no reason to use the originals. So what we do is we hire composers to come in and who are students of those styles and recompose and rewrite and then re-record everything. So yes, you'll hear all of, my favorite thing about Scooby-Doo is that riding through that ride is like riding through an episode and Mm -hmm. every little cue is one of the act break cues that you remember from sitting watching those on Saturday mornings. Matter of fact, my favorite one of all was when I was sitting down um, uh, 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 with the composer and, uh, and he was playing me the clips for everything and there's that scene in every, um, his name is Lou Faginson, by the way. He's a genius. He's done a lot of cartoons, actually, a lot of current cartoons. He, there's that scene in every Scooby-Doo where they are concocting the trap, right? Where they're figuring out how to catch whoever the, the spirit is, whoever the faker is, you know? And it's a very signature piece. I'm going to hum it because everybody who's a Scooby fan will know it. And the minute he played this for me in his demo form mm-hmm. before we went to record it with the actual band, I literally teared up because it was, I rever- I, I reverted to being eight. It was perfect. It's that cue that goes bump, 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 <laughs> right? Everybody yeah. knows it. Yeah. It's because Scooby-Doo is super jazzy, but it's it's variations on the theme depending on where you are in right, the arc right, of an episode. Right. So we he wrote music that is timed specifically to our ride that uses all of those cues right on down to the, I wouldn't have gotten, I would have gotten away with the two of them for these meddling kids. And there's always sort of a play out that's a little jazzier and rock sort of rock band that's in the ride too. I mean, so everything people will hear in this park on the Looney Tunes and Hanna-Barbera and Tom and Jerry side are recognizable themes, but none of those are original are the, the original recordings from the cartoons. They are completely recomposed, rearranged, and purposely crafted for this space. Those were all done by um, 
two different uh, uh, sources. Um, we had two different composers. Uh, uh, Carl Johnson and Lou Faginson did the lion's share of all the cartoon stuff. And that's both a band in Los Angeles. We had the, some of the best uh, session musicians in Los Angeles and an orchestra. And we had the uh, Seattle Symphony. So we had about a nice. about an 80-piece 80 80 orchestra doubled in some cases um, to, to fill out that sound. Now, Looney Tunes is only half of it. Then you get into the DC side of things. Mm-hmm. And everybody thinks, well, you'll use, you know, the... the, the, the um, the John Williams Superman theme, and you'll use the, you know, the Hans Zimmer, whatever, uh, the, the Danny Elfman Justice League score. No, we, we, with movie scores, it's even harder because Warner Brothers as a studio owns the rights to that music as it is attached to those movies. Oh, those wow. movie, yeah, movie scores, okay. movie scores are. Uh, uh, are there are publishing rights involved? There, the songwriter. There's the people that played on the recording. All of those are licensed to the studio to be released with the movie and insert and in some promotional cases like commercials and sort of edited versions but the minute you reuse it for something not related to the release of that movie it's actually more expensive to license those and then on top of that the the worlds we're creating for dc were not visually related to the live action films a lot of people ask me why and um, the easiest answer is when we went in and asked DC which Batmobile to use, and they said, "No, make your own." And we said, "What?" And they showed us a poster. Everyone else has. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> everyone else has. They showed us a poster that they actually sell, I think, on DC Direct, and it's got like a hundred Batmobiles on it. And it's not just the movie ones; it's everyone that showed up in all, all of the animated series, and even the comic books. It changes almost issue to issue a little bit, depending on the artist, right? So. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's easy for a fan to think, oh, but the Tumblr's amazing. Yeah, but guess what? But when did this park open? 2018? When did Batman Begins come out? That's a decade old, mm-hmm. kids. That's, that movie's going to be 15 by the time this park hits its stride. Why would we do that? Why would we look like something? Because the whole point of the Batmobile, much like the Bond films, is like they are reflections of the style and, and energy of the time. So we weren't here to celebrate the live action films. We were here to create the real Gotham City and the real Batmobile and the real Metropolis for the purposes of this park. So it is everything had to match visually within the park. It, everything had to rhyme together. So we weren't going to take the bat suit from this video game and the, and the car from this movie and the sets from this animated series. We had to create it all new. So that applies to the music. Every single DC theme you hear in the park is a 100% new composition. It didn't borrow anything from anything. It's all very cinematic and it's very big and beautiful, beautiful, but it's all new and all recorded by uh, a piece orchestra with the Seattle Symphony. Because I mean, walking through Metropolis, it still has that, it's still a very classic feel to it. I mean, yeah. uh, I actually love the Hall of Justice. That's uh, Andy um, Garfield wrote that. Yeah. And, and just, just the way that entire experience comes together, uh, the facade of it, that entrance hallway as you're going into the attraction, and then the sound of it, it all just comes together. It gives you this feeling of um, its timelessness. I mean, how, how, how did you explain it? It's like you're walking among the gods. Right, right. We wanted the, the Hall of Justice to feel like you were walking into a temple of the gods. The, you have, people have probably seen the photos online with the statues. Yeah, we really yeah. wanted that to have an impact. And, and, and again, if we had done the Hall of Justice... Um, in its current design, which is mostly known from, it's in the comic books, but for people of our age, it's mostly known from, you know, Super Friends. Super Friends. Um, and, but used the, 
you know, character designs from, I don't know, one of the current video games and used music from one of the live action films, that becomes a pastiche. That becomes, Mm -hmm. then you're just riffing on pop culture. You're not honoring those stories with the gravitas and the importance and and the depth that they really have. And so from every last little visual detail all the way to the music in the entire park, we had to look at everything holistically. And so it's, mm-hmm. there's a lot more um, thought and custom process going on with making those things work together, music included. Mm-hmm. And then also, uh, you know, food and beverage. If you go across the way over to uh, um, you know, the restaurant there, there's an enormous amount of fan service. Yeah. Uh, and they're for Superman fans as well. Right. That's uh, so one of the great things about um, Metropolis and Gotham City uh, is that they are characters in the yeah. DC universe, right? They're not just New York, mm-hmm. right? And this ain't Marvel. The, no, not at all. It's, it, it, I love Marvel, but when I think one of the things that excited me most about working with DC was oh, yeah, Metropolis and Gotham City are real places that have that wink at major North American city. Like Metropolis is kind of Chicago, kind of New York, kind of maybe, you know, Gotham City is mostly kind of New York, kind of New Jersey. You don't really know. But but, they're, but they are elevated above that. And in doing that, you also have real places in the fiction that comic book fans and, and, and now the TV fans, because it's showed up in a bunch of the TV shows, right, right. Um, know these places. So right across the street from the Hall of Justice is the ASO Clubs. ASO Clubs is um, a, a pub in Metropolis run by a guy named Bibbo Babowski. And Bibbo is a former boxer from like the 20s. He was a, uh, a, you know, a, a prize-winning f- a prize fighter. And in his retirement, he opened this pub right in in metropolis and it's like it's where all the the daily planet uh, reporters go for lunch and grab a beer after work and that kind of thing but the but the 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 hook of him as a character in the comics is that he's like superman's best pal he's like superman's biggest fan and uh um in the comic books he collects stuff from like battles across metropolis and puts it up in the restaurant like Hard Rock Cafe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we made the Hard Rock Cafe of Superman. But it's not so, and, and you get to play a little bit with that world because in Metropolis, in the world of DC Comics, Superman is a hero, but he's also a pop culture star. There are toys and, and, and products and like souvenirs of Superman in Metropolis. That makes sense. People of Metropolis wear Superman t-shirts. Right. Mm-hmm. So we got to play with that. And so it's the it's the Hard Rock Cafe of Superman. And it's got like bent traffic signs. And it's got a one of Brainiac's robots like shredded and torn in half in the middle. And, and there's all these little handwritten notes from Bibbo. Like like it's he's curating his own little museum and it's all over. My favorite is the the front sign. Um, uh, it says Ace of Clubs and it says no shoes, no shirt, no disrespect for Superman, no service. <laughs> <laughs> he's a tough guy and he's like you can't come in here unless you like superman so uh so that's one small example of these real world places jitters coffee which everybody knows now from the flash um zatanna uh, books and magic um all these places are park row pawn shop is even uh, um park row is next to crime alley which is where bruce's parents got murdered right, so right. like these are all there's a lot of reality in what we tried to create there in terms of not just the attractions but the place making and all the way down to the food and beverage and retail yeah because it's i mean these are just amazing franchises that i think there's there's you know 
you feel it, just deep-seated love for. Um, And here finally is a place where we have the opportunity to go be immersed in a realistic, you know, real fake uh, (laughs) representation of these spaces because we haven't seen that really in a theme park before. Mm -hmm. And um, that's why I'm getting from a lot of fans just this kind of yearning that, oh, goodness, could we please just possibly bring this thing to a city near me someday? <laughs> and and I think that gets into an interesting conversation about kind of the modern economics of the theme park industry yeah. and why parks like this are getting built in places like Abu Dhabi, but not necessarily in places like Orlando. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we all want to see these things um, sort of populated all over. I would love to. I would love to to have this close enough to bring all my friends. Trust me. I, I, I'm, I'm exceedingly proud of it and love it as a park goer. You know, one, yeah. of the, one of the things at the end of these projects is there's a moment where you're no longer us as designers. We're no longer the most important people in the building anymore, and it's somebody mm-hmm. else's. And that's actually really uh, fun for us because we get to sort of hand it off, and it becomes the uh, the guests own it, and watching them enjoy it is uh, it's just great. I just I I hate not being able to go see it all the time. You know, right? Um, but the reality of theme park development is that. On the surface, a lot of fans may think, oh, well, if Warner Brothers wants to get exposure for their brands, they will build a theme park here because in the U.S. Lord knows they don't have nearly enough exposure for their brands yet. <laughs> right. And uh, for whatever reason, they may say, oh, but there's a big tourist population, et cetera, et cetera. But it really is more difficult than that. And and you and I talked about right before we started this, like if the, if the listeners have not read Walt's Revolution, Buzz Price's book, you really should because it gives mm-hmm. you the baseline of why and how large theme parks happen. And it's not always just for creative reasons. These are business ventures. Right. And in order to spend an, 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 this inordinate amount of money on a development, you have to have a certain amount of certainty that you're going to get a return on it. And so whenever you go into these parks, uh, whenever we get into park development, there's always something called a feasibility study, which mm-hmm. we don't do, but we work with the people that do. And feasibility studies look at a region and they look at the demographic and they look at the the past 50 years of economic development. They, they with uh, financial people, look at the next 50 years of financial development for that economic development in that region. They look at um, culturally what other things are there that are similar to theme parks or any, any sort of theme park-like offerings. Because when it boils down to it, as you said, the TLDR of this, is theme parks get built where there is a burgeoning middle class with money to spend and nothing to spend it on. That's it. That's the the simple answer. And so when you look at places like China and the Middle East, which have in the past 20 or 30 years, a burgeoning middle class that's allowed to have their their money and, and need to spend it. And in the cases of many places in the Middle East and China are not allowed to leave because it's a complicated visa process. They are incentivizing the building of these, um, tourist destinations to to develop and thrive in that envi- in that specific environment. You look at North America, we have a shrinking middle class and we have a, 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 an embarrassment of riches when it comes to theme parks. The, the regionals take up the slack for the people who can't afford to go to the coasts for the big parks. And the big parks have w- enough capacity to handle not just North America, but Japan and South America and Europe. And so it's it, you, I would love to say we're, that we will uh, see Warner Brothers build one of these in North America sometime, but it's unlikely. Um, now, the lessons learned from it and the products developed in it mm-hmm. in terms of the individual attractions and the sort of way that we have created immersive worlds around brands that previously didn't really have them. Is that something they're interested in exploring options for around the globe? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Okay. But it, it, whether or not it's going to be this very park going somewhere, this park was very rarefied air because it was an extremely motivated part of the world with a lot of money and an extremely motivated um, financial and creative partner in the form of Moral, who not only had the money, but had the vision for the, lo- for the location and the passion for the brand, frankly. Like I said, I, I, I've got a chance to spend some time with this guy, and I got to pitch him a lot of the park, and he would call me on on details about dc it was great it was like it was, wasn't your typical like executive note it was like he knew what he was talking about so when you have that perfect storm that's when you get to do an ex, a really extraordinary product like this right right um so yeah i mean absolutely i mean um yeah, it's a lot of money to go to Abu Dhabi, but uh, <laughs> if you're a hardcore theme park fan, man, that's another thing to put on the bucket list uh, with you know Tokyo Disney Sea, this, you oh. know Singapore, Shanghai, um, Efling in yeah. in Europe. There are so many great places to go around the world, and yeah. here's one more to throw onto that list yeah, of things you. that we can dream about. Yeah, I hope people um, get to see it. Yeah, a- absolutely amazing, and and you know. I hope that you know Warner Brothers has has caught a little bit of this bug as well, <laughs> and uh, you know maybe they might get they're doing some cool things with their Halloween event in yeah. in California now. They seem to be a little bit more motivated, and yeah. you know as theme park fans, the more big companies that are motivated to be big players in the theme park business, yeah. that's good for all of us, isn't yeah. it? I think they get it. I think, you know, they've been a really great creative partner overall, just because the process with them is, you know, they don't. They, they do know theme parks. This yeah. is not new to them, right? They did. The, they used to own some. They own, used to own a bunch. <laughs> um, they had the, the two in Europe and the one in Australia. And, they ha- of course, they own the Six Flags. They, parks they own Six Flags, yeah. And, so, and, and now they still have their characters there. So they do understand this world. I think what they saw with this was um, an opportunity that at the, at the beginning might have looked like, oh, this is uh, only going to happen this once on a scale like this in Abu Dhabi. But now that they see the success of the park and they see that it's doing well, um, and they see the process that led us to these immersive worlds with these brands. I think they see the potential for these particular brands, Looney Tunes and DC Comics, in a way that I think they knew was always there, but needed visualizing for them to really become excited and motivated about it. So I, I walking the Warner execs through it when it, once it was done was amazing because as much as they'd, as they'd seen everything and been part of the process through the whole way, once they saw the final pixie dust and they saw all the lighting and all the audio, I had so many aha moments where like, oh, we get it now, right? Like, and these are that's not any comment on them uh, uh, being no, no. clueless about it. It's just we. This is our stock and trade, and and it doesn't surprise us, right? It, it's it's right. it's it's what we do. Um, th- these guys tell stories in, in 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 the people we deal with are mostly consumer products, so they deal stories with not necessarily the TV and film, but in through apparel and, and toys and games and video games and things. So this is a, yet another category where they get to see the potential of the storytelling power of these characters that they have, which right. is really really wonderful. Um, the regional part of that storytelling is pretty intrinsic too, in that a lot of people ask me like. How do you pick the brands that go into the into the park because of that region? And it, the short answer is half of the region, half of it matters because of the region, and, and the region influences it. Half of the region doesn't influence at all because Warner Brothers wants to expose their characters globally, right? But there's things we learned when we were there that are really fascinating, like the fact that the most popular, the most recognizable character in their stable, and from what we hear a metric of popularity that meets or exceeds even Mickey Mouse is Tom and Jerry. Wow. 
And right, I'd had the same response. Okay. I had the same response. Not Superman, Batman, not bugs. The reason for that is really simple once you think about it. Tom and Jerry requires zero translation. So Strong point. all of those cartoons in their library from the 40s on have been uh, uh, you know, um, syndicated and played on every television station in every corner of the globe for 40 years because it was for small countries and small cities and TV stations, it was probably cheap to license. Yeah. And so generations of kids dating back to the 50s and 60s in every country you can think of were exposed to this fighting cat and mouse. That And the humor of it and the character of it and knowing who those two characters are and what their world was required no knowledge of the Western world, required yeah. no, no knowledge of English at all. So they are the most popular, the, Warner Brothers tells us they are the most popular characters in the world. Wow. And that's why they have an e-ticket attraction at this yeah, park. Yeah, yeah. Right? Great little spinning coaster that's back there in Cartoon Junction. Yeah. One of my favorite moments of the park, uh, in, being in the park, was seeing a character op, a character photo op with Tom and Jerry, and they're out there in the fuzzy suits, and they're, the suits are adorable, and the performers are so wonderful. They're really great. Um, and I see these two teenage uh, Middle Eastern guys come up, and they're standing next to me, sort of staring at Tom and Jerry incredulously as they're, as they're posing for photos. And they go, they're, they're not friends. Why are they friends? They should not be friends. Which made me laugh. But I took the note and I went went over to the entertainment guy. I went, you know what? He has a point. Yeah. So we... We, we went backstage with the performers and we said, well, let's work up some business. And so we have them like back to back with their arms crossed and nice. sort of, you know, fists up like they're going to fight, but in a playful way. And so when they come out, they first do that and they shove each other out of the way and they try jockey for position in front of the photo. And we made them antagonistic and the crowd ate it up. Wow. And so that little bit of, so that's when we look at what a local audience has to say about the brands, that's the kind of feedback we're looking for. Um, but in some cases, like the Flintstones, they don't really know the Flintstones that much because mm-hmm. those are basically American sitcoms and they're very dialogue heavy. They're very character heavy. They've played and they kind of know who they are. But at the end of the day, it's just cute and colorful and fun. And the dinosaurs and, and cute animals that are also record players and, and monkey winches and things like that, that, those sight gags don't require translation either. So they work fine. So it, it really is. Um, there's something in all of the brands that people will respond to. Some of them and they know very well. Some of them, not so much. Our job is to figure out and lean into the parts that they know and amplify the parts that they don't. Before we get away here, um, let's pick up a thread that uh, you know we, we, we you started a little bit earlier and explain um, Area Fifty One and a Half to us. <laughs> so, original. Okay, so there's two small family rides in the two two small attractions in the park. One is a spinner like a you know a, a spinning carnival flat ride like a Dumbo style ride, and um, uh, the other is a bumper car. Yeah. And originally, in the first concept of those, they were part of Bedrock. So the spinning ride were pteranodons, and the bumper cars were um, uh, little triceratops, like okay. in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a in a quarry, right? So you were banging against each other. Um, because of that question of, well, Flintstones isn't necessarily that known, can we spread the wealth and use some other characters? And the neighboring land was already... Dynamite Gulch, which was uh, Wiley Coyote. And so there's not a lot of characters in that part of Looney Tunes other than Yosemite Sam. There's a couple other Western guys, but nothing to hang our hat on in terms of attractions. And Warner Brothers said, you know, we really don't have a lot of, like we have a scene with Marvin in Animayhem, but we have nothing 
he's big enough where we'd like an attraction for him. And same goes for the Jetsons. They brought up the Jetsons, and oh, wouldn't that be great? Because it's a family, and you know, frankly, crassly from a mark from a merchandise perspective, Jetson stuff does great because it's a family unit and all yeah, that yeah. stuff. Like just like the Flintstones, you know. Um, the dad T-shirts, by the way, for the Flintstones is awesome. My favorite one is actually um, um, Bam Bam, and he's lifting a, a, a barbell with one finger, and it says, "Do you even lift?" It's great. It's really. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's also a Loyal Order Water Buffalo oh, shirt, nice. yeah, which yeah. is perfect. Um, I bought every shirt in that park <laughs> before I came home. Um, so they said, "What about Jetsons and Marvin?" And we said, "Oh goodness, how do you make that fit?" Like, how do we, we don't have a sci-fi land, and yeah. they don't fit back in Cartoon Junction. They sort of have to, master plan-wise, they were going to be in the place where these other two Flintstone things were going to be anyway. And so we looked at it long and hard, and we said, well, it is the desert. Oh, well, what if they crash-landed in the desert? And so we made two little crash sites, basically, one for Marvin and one. And we said, well, the Jetsons wouldn't crash. They would just land. Yeah. So we made it a big landing pad. And we made Marvin, like, if he cra- why did he crash there? Well, he probably ran out of fuel or something. So we made the, the theme of the bumper cars. It's called Crater Crashers. And there's a whole, and it's a story, again, that the guests don't know, but it's told subtly in the environment. If he has to, um, you have to bang the cars together to create some kinetic energy to get his ship started. Because at the end of the cycle of the ride, the ship starts burst, has steam start to burst out of it, right? Right, so, right. Um, and then the Jetsons is just a big landing pad for their spaceships that are circling before they land down here. And the top of the, the what you call the folly, the little sculpted piece at the top of a spinning ride, looks like the apartment complex. So it sort of winks, yeah. it winks at that being up in space. But we're like, ah, why are these here? So they're in the desert. Oh, my God, we have a perfect idea. And so for a while, there was a fence around all of it, like a chain link fence. And it had a sign on it that said Area 51 and a half. We had to get rid of the fence because it didn't quite work with the theming. But there is now a poster. There's a giant billboard that says visit scenic Area 51 and a half. And it advertises like a nighttime walking tour. And so it's a it's a third string reference that is yeah, off right, in the corner. Right. It's not in your face. But if. A, a fan notices it. They'll, it's what connects those two rides in a really, really cherry on top kind of clever way. Yeah, it's just. I, I think it's just another way that it's. It illustrates why the experience of actually being in a physical place is something that is far superior to talking about it, seeing a video about it, mm. any of those sorts of things. Like you were saying when you were bringing the executives in who had been mm. part of this creative process. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a reason why we fans crave going to theme parks is because there's nothing like actually being in the environment yeah. and seeing all this detail yeah we've all been in in a, a disney universal park and, and sitting there immersing ourselves in the detail and you've been there 10 times already but the 11th time you notice that thing right that was the goal like how how much can we cram in here to make sure that every visit there's something small that tickles that emotional side of you that that makes you regress from being an adult to being an eight-year-old again and and to be honest i had as as close as i was to everything i still had those moments towards the end mainly because of seeing other people have them right as Mm -hmm. you walk through and you see other people respond to stuff it just reminds you ah right people do notice this even if they even if they don't know the brand even if they don't speak english even if they don't know how to um explain why they like something or like a place they're responding to the place in an emotional way and that that's that's really what you're looking for right and like i said having spent some time there and i hope to get some more time there someday i i think you and your team just nailed that so congratulations dave everyone thank you at so Pinkwell, much. and everyone at uh, warner brothers and the team that supported that uh, thank you Ryan. great job i appreciate that thanks for taking the time to talk with us today thank you so much 
Case, it's been Theme Park Insider, Robert Niles. We've been talking with Dave Cobb about Warner Brothers World in Abu Dhabi. Hottest new theme park in the world, uh, literally and figuratively. <laughs> it's indoors. It's not that it's, hot. It's air conditioned. It's nice. Yeah. Uh, so thanks for joining us today, and uh, we'll see you next time.